the show I got I'm a little bit excited I put the uh, some of the lighting in here in a slightly new position um, you won't I don't think you'll really notice the difference on uh, on YouTube but I was I had a little shadow on the side of my face that was cast by the microphone and I wanted to like you know change that a little bit so I think I actually succeeded but I'll be able to check it out later and uh, see if that's true a uh, lot of stuff to get to today we have uh, I think it's a fun show. We have, uh, I'm going to lead with Joe Biden. He saved his ass at the last minute. This is actually really interesting and really important. Uh, We're going to talk about that. We have a bunch of stuff from uh, Case Study QB today. Shout out to Case Study QB for doing a phenomenal job picking important segments from mainstream media. So I'm going to make fun of Larry Kudlow. I'm going to make fun of, I think it's Bloomberg. Um, fascinating discussion going on about the four-day work week now. We'll talk about that. Uh, D.C. legalized magic mushrooms. Uh, it's official now. The Pope is in the show today because, uh, you know, it's one step forward, two steps backwards when it comes to the church or any sort of official religious organization and gay rights. So we'll talk about that. Um, and then later on in the show, some terrible arguments used against universal basic income 
the Treasury Secretary is considering a global minimum tax on corporations. That's a really fun conversation to have, uh, and we'll do that. We'll have a conversation on exactly that. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, like I said, we'll do that with Joe Biden. So the other day, um, I released a segment that was titled something along the lines of, Joe Biden gives up on his presidency. And um, at the time, that's really the most straightforward interpretation you could have of the events that were occurring, because Joe Biden said, I don't want to get rid of the filibuster. I believe it was he doesn't even want to reform the filibuster at the time. And then you had Joe Manchin as well basically say, um, if you don't have bills with bipartisan support moving forward, I will block every bill moving forward. So you need to get at least one Republican on the record being for your bill or I'm out. So that, I mean, if that set of facts remained, it really would be the end of Biden's presidency and you really would have given up because you're not going to get anything done that way at all. If you keep the filibuster and you don't reform the filibuster and every piece of legislation has to be bipartisan, you're just not going to get anything through because it's impossible. You have 51 on the Democratic side. You need 60 votes to get through regular order because everybody, everything is auto-filibustered. There's no way you're going to get nine Republicans to join you. It's mission impossible. Guys, when they passed Obamacare, which is a right-wing health care reform that came from the Heritage Foundation and was supported by Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley and Mitt Romney, when they passed that, they did it with no Republican votes. So during the Obama era, Obama would do Republican policies, and Republicans would say, now we're against Republican policies because you're for them. And they're going to be exactly that obstructionist this time around, too. So it really looked like game, set, match on his entire presidency. Well, now he swoops in at the last minute, and he saves his own ass. So aren't you going to have to choose... I know you've been reluctant to do away with the filibuster. Aren't you going to have to choose between preserving the filibuster and advancing your agenda? Yes. But here's the choice. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate back in the old days when you used to be around there. And that is that the filibuster, you had to stand up and command the floor. And you had to keep talking along. You couldn't call for, you know, no, no one could say, you know, quorum call. Once you stop talking, you lost that, and someone could move in and say, I moved the question of. So you got to work for the filibuster. So you're for that reform. You're for bringing back the talking filibuster. I am. That's what it was supposed to be. Look, I think, don't hold me to the numbers, George, but I think between 1960 and 2000, I'm making this number up, I don't know, there were like, uh, you know, 50 filibusters. Now they're like 200 since then. Since that's put a hold on it, that's it. Yeah. I mean, you know, so... The idea, it, it almost is getting to the point where there's, you know, democracy's having a hard time functioning, a hard time functioning. And so, look, I'm not saying this is going to be easy, George, but I do believe there's enough Republicans over time who are going to have, look, you're, you're, they haven't had that epiphany you said you were going to see in the campaign. No, no, well, I've only been here six weeks, pal. Okay, give me a break. <laughs> been here six weeks. 
I think the fifth thing is going to come in 20, between now and 2022. This is one, there's 78% of people say they support this program. 52% of Republicans. Let's assume it's off by 15%. They're going to go home and campaign. Republican voters want that $1,500. Republican voters want it, but all of the politicians are against it. That's literal. All of the politicians are against it. 59% of Republican voters wanted that COVID relief package, but all of the politicians are against it. So there will be no epiphany. There will be no enlightenment light bulb moment for these elected Republicans. And that part is incredibly delusional and naive. For a guy who's like 117 years old, that is like real Bush League stuff. That's rookie amateur nonsense right there. I get it, Joe. You have a personal relationship with some of the Republicans. They don't give a goddamn about your personal relationship. In fact, they'll keep that personal relationship going with you as they also are against every you know, legislative proposal you have. So it's funny because he has this um, childish view at the same time he said at the beginning, like, yes, I do have to pick between eliminating the filibuster or reforming the filibuster and my own legacy. So how could you, don't you see that those things are, are contradictory? The first statement was correct. You're right. If you don't get rid of or reform the filibuster, your legacy is donezo, no question about it. But then he goes on to say, no, I think between now and 2022, they'll have some sort of epiphany. Hey, pal, I've only been here six weeks. Give me a break. doesn't matter if you're there six weeks, 16 weeks, 60 weeks, or 6,000 weeks. They're not going to do Dickie McGee's acts with you, son. They're not going to do it. They're partisan hack goons. They're not going to do it. So really, the thing that should be done is exactly what he's calling for here. Make the filibuster the filibuster again. Make the filibuster the talking filibuster, which was the original idea. And then you actually force them to work to block legislation. And they will not be able to block nearly as much because it's a pain in the ass to filibuster. So, yeah, you won't, they won't be able to block it if you do that. That's what they need to do. And if they do that, well, you also shine a spotlight on the things that they're against. So let's say... You reform the filibuster, make it the original filibuster again. Well, then when you try to pass a minimum wage increase, if one of the Republicans wants to filibuster a minimum wage increase, be my guest, bitch. You're going to make a fool of yourself. This is an 80% issue with the American public. You're going to go up there and act like you're some sort of hero crusading for justice when only 20% of the country agrees with your position? By all means, you're doing our work for us. You're doing the left's work for us in terms of the next election. Nobody's going to want to vote for you if you're up there, I'm against higher wages and I don't care who knows it. Okay, thank you for being a complete and utter idiot. We appreciate that. So yes, that is the answer. That absolutely is the answer. But the other point that you need to make is something he almost nails here, uh, which is, the bill's bipartisan, even if you pass it with just Democratic votes. Now, you might hear that and say, wait, what? That makes no sense. Isn't that like the opposite of the definition of bipartisan? No, because I just told you, 59% of Republican voters were for that COVID relief bill. A lot of these ideas that we're talking about proposing and attempting to pass 
These are ideas that have over 50% Republican voter support or in the ballpark of 50% Republican support. So if you have like 80 or 90% of Democratic voter support and 50% of Republican voter support, that's bipartisan. You say it's bipartisan among the people, among the American people whose will is actually supposed to be represented in this god-awful town. That's what you say. So I don't care that the swamp is against my legislation. I wear that as a badge of honor if the swamp is against my legislation. You know, if Mitch McConnell is against my legislation, wonderful. That guy's phenomenally corrupt, and he's been so since 1796. I mean, what a joke. So, listen, in the same way that we said previously, Biden gives up on his presidency. Today, Biden saved his own presidency's ass. He really did. He just saved his own ass here. So, I mean, credit words do. If they do this, a lot more will get done. Now, to be clear, it's still going to be difficult, and you're still going to have run-ins with Joe Manchin, and you're going to butt heads, and, you know, Biden would need to be smart and use the carrot or stick approach and would have to, you know, sort of make Manchin and Cinema heal from time to time with various things, but you will actually get some stuff done if you make the filibuster the filibuster again. Bring back the original filibuster, the talking filibuster. Right now, the way it works is, the minority party could just say, we are declaring that we are filibustering and now you need 60 votes. Nobody has to talk. Nobody needs to exert any effort. So go back to the original filibuster. And then if you do that, you might actually slap together some decent proposals and pass them and be wildly popular. Again, don't get it twisted. He's underwhelming to this point, in my opinion, because he said $2,000 checks immediately. They didn't do $2,000 checks. They didn't do it immediately. They did $1,400 checks, and it took a while, okay? Not good. They already dropped the $15 minimum wage um, from the COVID relief proposal. They subsidized COBRA, which was a giant giveaway to the for-profit health insurance companies. There's a lot of problems you could point to, a lot of them. But it's also the situation that it polls at, like, over 70%, this, this bill, you know? So it, he can, at the same time, be underwhelming, but also... Um, have good grades from the country, good marks from the country. And that's what's happening. So if they were to go about this and, and do what he's advocating for here, that would be huge. And that would make it so that a lot more things are possible. So let's do it, baby. Let's do it. And you know what? It actually worked out kind of well because by having the left advocate for just eliminating the filibuster, what happened? Now you made the compromise position, bring back the original filibuster, the talking filibuster. Now, by the way, I told you guys this before. That's always been my position, is to bring back the talking filibuster. Because when, when the left and when Democrats are in the minority party, I want to have the ability to have to go up there and talk for weeks <laughs> and block something. You know, I want us to have that tool when we're in the minority party. So that's why I want the talking filibuster. I don't want to eliminate the filibuster. Well, guess what? Like I said, now that's the compromise position, and we might actually get it. But listen, if they don't make that change, if they don't get the talking filibuster, then yeah, the original thing that we were talking about was correct, which is Biden gives up on his presidency, and nothing major will get done for the rest of his time in office. But if they do bring back the talking filibuster, stuff will get done. How good that stuff is is yet to be seen. My guess is it'll be half good, half neoliberal corporate crap, but, you know, 
we'll judge that when we see it, but this is the correct answer, and this is what needs to be done. And this is a big change from what he was saying previously. Before, he was just like, shut up about the filibuster, it's staying as it is. Now he's like, well, we should bring back the original one. That's the answer. Let's do that, and let's do it now. Okay. All right, now, we're already going to go to the right-wing media goons. We're starting with that early today. All right, Larry Kudlow, here we go. Larry Kudlow is uh, a Kool-Aid-drinking ideologue and a hack. He's a big believer and advocate of Reaganomics and the Laffer Curve and endless deregulation. He's been wrong about basically everything, every step of the way, his entire career. This is a guy who said uh, right before the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession that we weren't going to have a subprime mortgage crisis and we weren't going to have a Great Recession. We weren't even going to have a downturn. So, I mean, just that alone, it's like strike one, you're out. That's it. You don't know what you're talking about. He's against uh, raising the minimum wage. He might even be against having any minimum wage. So, anyway, he's a hardcore right-wing economic goon. He's a believer in, like, Austrian economics. Well, he went from the Trump administration, where he continued his elitist bullshit policies, and Trump allowed him to do that. Um, He went from there to now back on TV, and he's going to go after here the PRO Act, which is a pro-union piece of legislation. Let's see what he has to say. As President Biden's pitch for unions, it's about something that's called the PRO Act, as in pro-union act. By the way, private unions today are only 6% of the private workforce. That's all. Working folks have been voting with their feet away from union dues and rules for quite some time. Now, anti-growth provisions in this PRO Act really have nothing to do with the middle-class economy and everything to do with a union left-wing ideological wish list. Right-to-work laws in 27 states could be erased. This, even though right-to-work states have much stronger economic growth than union states. The card check provision would end secret ballots in union elections. The gig economy would be badly damaged with a very narrow definition of independent contractor. And union harassment of workers would occur if employers are forced to release personal information. Snap union elections would give companies little time to tell their story. Really? What this is about is plain and simple. It's about worker freedom. In a free country, blessed with free speech, why shouldn't our workforce be free to choose on a level playing field, whether they want union dues and rules or whether they want complete right-to-work freedom. This is hilarious for a number of reasons. He keeps using the word freedom. Free, this is about freedom. This is about personal choice. This is about giving workers the ability to make their own mind up. So he's trying to act like the pro-union people are anti-freedom, and the anti-union people are pro-freedom. That's ridiculous. I mean, first of all, this guy is a hardcore capitalist. That's what he is. Think about the way capitalism functions. Now, I'm not doing a value judgment here. I'm just being descriptive, okay? The way it works is 
you have an owner. And the owner could be your boss or the owner could hire like a manager, an executive, somebody at the top, and they're your boss. And if you work for them, they tell you to do stuff, you have to do it. So I like the way Noam Chomsky describes this. He says that um, in capitalism, each company is its own little tyranny. It's its own little dictatorship where the owner is like the emperor or the king. And then they have somebody underneath them. Um, or sometimes they're the ones who call all the shots and make all the decisions, but usually they hire somebody underneath them who they handle the day-to-day stuff and they call all the shots. But for shit sure, you have no freedom as a worker, not even close. You basically sell your labor on the marketplace, rent your labor on the marketplace, and you're told what to do by a higher-up. That would be the opposite of freedom. That would be I'm submitting to... be a part of a little tyranny, a little dictatorship. That's what it is. Now, look at the way he twists the reality of the situation. And he says, well, but you got to give people the choice. Uh, Are you, I guess you're anti-choice. If, you know, if you're pro-union, you're anti-choice. What's the real purpose of unions? The real purpose of unions is to do something called collective bargaining. Collective bargaining means you and a bunch of your fellow workers get together, work together, and you collectively negotiate with the boss because you have more power when you're in solidarity with your fellow workers than you do when you're negotiating by yourself. See, in a negotiation between a single worker and a boss or an owner, think about it. Who has all the power in that negotiation? The boss has all the power. It's like they could basically say, agree to all my terms or piss off and go find something else. So I'm going to tell you everything I'm going to tell you the terms of the deal, and you can either accept it or not. If you don't accept it, get the fuck out of here. So it's not, an, it's not an equal negotiation. It's not a fair negotiation. All the power is on the side of the owner or the boss. But when you collectively bargain, ah, see, now you take that power imbalance and, and you reduce it. You reduce the ex- extreme inequities in that power balance. So now when you work together with all of your fellow workers, you have a fighting chance to get better terms in a negotiation. Now, by the way, I'm explaining all this to you. Is it like, oh, Larry Kudlow doesn't know this? No, he knows it. He absolutely knows it. But he's an ideologue, and he's arguing on the side of the capitalist owner class. So, but he's well aware of what happens with unions. So, for example, um, he brings up, oh, my God, right-to-work laws would be, you know, basically eliminated with this legislation, to which I respond, good. Because in reality, when you look at the numbers, right-to-work states are really right-to-work-for-less states. There's been detailed um, studies and and analysis on this, and they found out that on average, I believe the number is about, I'm going, you know, from five or six years ago, so forgive me if I'm a little bit off, but I think it's about $1,200 less per year is what um, workers make in right-to-work states, and they have worse benefits. Again, why is that? Because when you collectively bargain, you're going to get better terms than if you're negotiating when you're one person with your boss. So in other words, it's not an open question. Collective bargaining helps workers and gives them better contracts and better deals and better terms. The best example of that is a lot of the Scandinavian countries. A lot of them have almost universal collective bargaining. So if you're a worker, you're just in a union. Like that's the default setting. And guess what? They don't even have minimum wage protections in a lot of those countries. Why? Because the union contracts are so strong 
that the minimum wage that people make is above what any, you know, legal minimum wage would set. So think about that. That's how good the outlook is for workers when there's collective bargaining. You get, you know, paid vacation time by law, great benefits, um, more money. It's just, this is what happens. But again, Larry Kudlow knows this, but he's not on the side of the workers. He's on the side of the owners and of the wealthy and of the billionaires and of the corporations. So he brings up, well, unions are only 6% of the private sector. And he frames that as like, because we're giving people freedom and people are choosing not to be in unions. No, I would argue that the, the fact that unions only make up 6% of private sector workers, it has a lot to do with the fact that over the years, the rules have been rigged in favor of the owner class and against working people. And by the way, when we had higher rates of unionization in America, would you look at that? We had a, a thriving, much stronger working class and middle class. Again, they don't tell you that part. But when you look back in U.S. history uh, at the time that was called the golden age of economic expansion, post-World War II period, um, we had a middle class that was the envy of the world, and we had much higher rates of unionization. That's not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. When you have more unions, you help workers more, and they have better terms in their contracts and in their deals. That's how it works. So, and, you know, you mix that with we had higher marginal tax rates on the wealthy. We had the New Deal programs thriving. I mean – there's a reason why that was the golden age of economic expansion. Uh, then he brings up the gig economy. Um, you know, he's, he's basically arguing that, well, this is going to hurt the gig economy, and that would be a shame. Mm, that wouldn't be a shame. You know, the gig economy, what's happening now is you have these giant businesses that are trying to um, classify their workforce not as employees, but as gig economy independent contractors. And the reason they're doing that is not what they tell you, like, oh, we want you to have more freedom and make your own schedule and all that stuff. No. The reason they're doing that is because they don't want the more strict labor standards that accompany the classification of being an employee. That's why they're doing it. So they want to be able to pay less and not give you as many contractual rights. And, like, that's really the reason why they do it is because, they sort of want to be able to screw you. And if they classify you as a gig economy independent contractor as opposed to an employee, they could screw you. So that's why they're doing it. Again, he doesn't tell you that part. Um, and then the, one of the interesting parts of this legislation, the PRO Act, is that it prevents management from doing basically anti-union propaganda because that's one of the things that happens is they try to convince you that unions are bad for you and, you know, they're going to cause you more pain than they're worth and you have to pay dues and you'll make less money. Like they try to just give, do propaganda – this bill prevents management from being able to do anti-union propaganda. And he, of course, again, frames that as a bad thing. So just look at how misleading that segment is, man. That segment is incredibly misleading. He, he acts like, oh, I'm in favor of freedom, and people on the right are in favor of freedom, and the anti-union people are in favor of freedom, and these pro-union people are against freedom. Utter nonsense. I would argue you have more freedom the more you have financial stability and security. And you know how you get more financial stability and security? being part of a union. So really, I'd say we're the ones who are more pro-freedom, and they're the ones who are more anti-freedom, you know? So he'll never tell you the simple fact that unions correlate with higher wages and more benefits for workers, and that's a good thing for workers. He will try to obfuscate and deflect and rationalize and tap dance around that all day. But he's an ideologue, he's a partisan hack, and he's misleading you on purpose.
Okay. Next. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't bring my seltzer with me today. That's a damn shame. I'll have to grab it during the break. So we have some good news and some news that's, you know, somewhat surprising if you don't follow this stuff regularly. Look at what's going on in Washington, D.C. I think this is from the Washingtonian. D.C. Initiative 81, which passed with overwhelming support last fall, goes into effect Monday, March 15th under the Ethiogenic Plant and Fungus Policy Act of 2020. Natural psychedelics, including magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, and mescaline, are decriminalized making arrests for their possession or use the lowest priority for D.C. police. The law survived a 30-day congressional review period and a threat by U.S. Representative Andy Harris, who prevented the district from fully legalizing cannabis following a 2014 ballot initiative that passed with support for 70% of D.C. voters to derail it. Harris, who set off a metal detector near the House floor while carrying a concealed gun this January, had framed the matter as a public safety issue. I love that. I love the contradiction of me carrying a gun. That's a freedom issue, bro. I could do whatever I want. You could piss off if you don't like it. But people putting whatever they want to put in their body. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't be crazy. This is insane. I'm against this. Yeah, uh, we see you. We see you, you silly, ridiculous human being. Okay, so, I mean, this is big, man. This is a big step. They have decriminalized psychedelic drugs. I completely support this, and I promise you, you will not see the subsequent downfall of civilization that some morons would predict. It's not like since now they've decriminalized magic mushrooms, everybody's going to be on them 24-7, there's going to be a giant uptick in car accidents, and uh, people are going to stop going to work. And n- nonsense, 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 nonsense. Um, what's going to happen is, yeah, will some people experiment with it more? Yeah, probably. Um, but there won't be detrimental effects to that. There just won't be. There won't be these, you know, macro factors that make the make D.C. grind to a halt. It's just not going to happen. But I am reminded of a conversation that we had with uh, Dr. Carl Hart on Crystal Kyle and Friends, and there is a bit of, what did he call it, psychedelic supremacy going, no, psych, was it psychedelic supremacy? I think that may have been the term he used. And the idea is, well, there are some drugs that are the good drugs that we can maybe either legalize or decriminalize. And there's, there's the other ones that are far too extreme and far too dangerous, and we need to keep those criminal. Uh, or we need to you know, make sure those never get legalized. And um, that's bullshit, man. That's bullshit. You know, really, at the very least, you should decriminalize all these substances and you know, legalize some. But really, the answer is to legalize, tax, and regulate all of it. And a lot of people don't know the history of this stuff. A lot of people don't know that the drug war didn't happen because, like, scientists were sitting around a big table and doing formulas, and they said, well, this drug is too dangerous for the population, and this drug is not. No. If you look at the history of it, for example, opium became illegal because the Chinese who were here, the immigrants, building the railroads, they had opium dens, and there was racism against them, and so... They 
the white majority cracked down and made it illegal. You look at the history of marijuana and how that's tied to Mexican immigration. And again, racism is a key part of that. Listen to Richard Nixon and his administration. They admitted, they admitted that, yeah, we're doing the drug war because these are the undesirables. The black people don't vote for us, so we want to criminalize the black lifestyle. And white hippies don't vote for us, so we want to criminalize the white hippie lifestyle. That's why we're doing it. So this stuff is on the record and open. It was never about safety. It was never about security. It was never about, you know, science. No, it's highly, highly political. And there was a time back in the day when, you know, cocaine was in the original Coca-Cola, for example. You could go to the pharmacy and get basically morphine, which is basically heroin. Like, there was a time when you could do that. Well, then we had the drug war, then we had the moral panic, then there was the crackdown. And now we're just getting to a place where we're starting to inch in the right direction with legalizing marijuana in a bunch of these different states and now decriminalizing other substances. But don't fall for the bullshit argument of, like, well, these substances that I like are good and okay, and these other ones that other people like, no, they're bad and we need to keep those criminal. That's complete garbage, and you've fallen for some reefer madness type hysteria if you bought into that idea. Let me just give you another example. Um, like people would think, oh my, like cocaine, are you crazy? Don't legalize it, don't decriminalize it, don't do anything. Well, guess what? In some ways, we kind of have semi-legal, a semi-legal drug that gives you the same kind of high. If you get Adderall, you know, that is effectively the way it acts in the body and the high it gives you is very similar to cocaine. That amphetamine-y, uppy high. And with Adderall, you have to go get a prescription and whatnot, but there would be, you wouldn't see the downfall of civilization if we legalized, tax and regulated to the point where you can go to CVS or Walgreens or wherever and buy it over the counter. You wouldn't see the downfall of civilization that people are pretending like we would. So I just want everybody to keep that in mind as we celebrate laws like this. Like every time there's a vote and the people decide, yes, let's legalize marijuana in our respective state, all of us go, yay, good for you. That's wonderful. Um, But we don't even have the conversation and the polls don't reflect that other substances would get that same treatment. And that's just because the public hasn't caught up yet to the reality on this stuff. And again, that's a shame, but, you know, we got to get the word out there. We got to get the word out there that really all this stuff should be legalized, taxed, and regulated. And uh, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see deleterious effects. You just wouldn't, you know, if anything, you're increasing freedom, you're increasing liberty, and you're also bringing about justice because paired with this should be releasing every single nonviolent drug offender in the country and recognizing that really this is not even close to a crime, whether you were using these substances or selling these substances. And we're getting there again, we're inching in the right direction, but as of right now, people still have this psychedelic supremacy idea where it's like, well, the mushrooms are mushrooms and ayahuasca and DMT and that stuff, well, those are the good drugs because they're potential positive effects and it reduces anxiety and depression and this and that. Marijuana is great for some people for relaxation, among other things. So, but that's it. Don't talk about the other drugs. That's silly, because really, throughout history, people, as Dr. Carl Hart said, about 80% of all drug users are moderate drug users, and they're not addicted. And those sorts of effects happen with all sorts of drugs, namely, you know, something to fight depression, something to fight anxiety. These are things that people take various substances for, even ones that you wouldn't expect. So this is a great day 
it just happened the other day, but March 15th was great, and we're moving in the right direction on drug policy, but we need to go further. You're always going to hear me say that. You need to go further. The fight is not over unless and until we free all the nonviolent drug offenders and legalize, tax, and regulate all these drugs all around the country. Now, that doesn't mean, like, you can't regulate it. In fact, on the contrary, you should regulate these substances. But, again, as a general rule, you want to embrace freedom as much as possible and legalize, tax, and regulate all of them, even ones that you might not think should be like that, you know? I, when, when it comes to marijuana for me, it actually makes me paranoid. It's actually not a good drug for me. I don't like it at all. Um, and if everybody reacted to marijuana the way I do, I'd be like, I don't even understand why anybody wants this to be legal. But um, the fact of the matter is my experience is not the most common experience. And even if it was, who cares? You should still be able to put, put in your body whatever you want to put in your body. You shouldn't criminalize these substances. Um, you should let people make their own decisions in terms of what they want to put in their body. And this is a big step on that front. It really is. But, again, got to go further. Okay, next. Here's a really interesting story that I was thinking a lot about recently. Spain decided they're going to do this giant pilot program testing out a four-day work week. The total number of hours in the work week is going to be 32. And this is the biggest program ever attempted with an idea like this. Because if I'm not mistaken, it's about 200 companies and 6,000 workers are going to you know, partake in this program. Now, this seems incredibly foreign for somebody from the United States of America because we have a culture here that's almost geared towards endless work. Um, it's kind of evolved like that over time. But listen, if you ask me, I think that other places have really struck a better balance between work time and leisure time. And this is, this is something that's fascinating, and I really wish them the best. So let me show you. This is from Business Insider uh, from 2019, but take a look at this. Microsoft recently implemented a four-day work week at a subsidiary in Japan, leading to a 40% productivity increase. A four-day work week can either mean that employees work a traditional 40-hour week over four days or that they work four typical eight-hour days totaling 32 hours per week. A 30-hour work week was popular in the early 20th century, but support dropped off following the Great Depression. Now some companies are experimenting with the idea again. So um, I went back and I read an article on this because I remember reporting on this all the way back in 2013. There's a great article in Alternet that went through the history of this in the United States. And um, you're going to be floored by some of these facts. So apparently in 1933, a 30-hour work week law passed the Senate. Well, let me repeat that. In 1933, a 30-hour workweek law passed the Senate, which is even two hours less compared to what Spain is, is trying now. So now it didn't pass the House, so it didn't become law, but we were this close in the United States to basically having a four-day workweek, having a 30-hour workweek. What happened was, as part of the New Deal, 
there was a compromise and it became like a 40-hour work week and it was paired with some other legislation as part of the New Deal. And so instead of going with the 30-hour idea, and by the way, the idea was to get more people working in shorter hours. Instead of that, we ended up going with 40 hours and pairing it with other New Deal programs. But again, it passed the Senate. We were this close to actually getting a 30-hour work week. In fact, some companies have a, a rich history because they freely chose to do a 30-hour work week. Um, the Kellogg Company is one of them. And in the article I was reading in Alternate, they give a few examples of these different companies that embrace the 30-hour work week. They also give examples, I think there's a town in California and there was a town in Utah that embraced the 30-hour work week. And people loved it. And then they had a vote later on whether or not to continue it, and people overwhelmingly voted to continue it. And like I told you with this Business Insider headline, some recent studies on it, one of them found a 40% productivity increase. That's insane. So you're working fewer hours, but you're getting paid the same, and you're being even more productive. Where's the downside? Where's the downside? There's no downside. So we almost had that 30-hour work week here. One other fact I want to give you just to show how, how much the Overton window has shifted in the U.S. in a bad direction. This is from that alternate article. Quote, at a time when workers produced a tenth of what they do today, William Howard Taft, a conservative Republican president, argued that all workers need two or three months of holiday time each year to improve health, family connections, and productivity. Conservative Republican presidents, William Howard Taft in particular, wanted up to three months paid vacation time by law for the American people. If Bernie Sanders were to propose that today, he would be called a crazy socialist, communist, insane person, and he'd be laughed out of the room. But back then, conservative Republicans were like, listen, we're the pro-family people, and we think you need to spend more time with your family and recharge and be more productive when you actually do work. So, yeah, I want up to three months paid vacation by law. Guys, just so you understand, the United States is the only developed country that doesn't have paid vacation time by law. Let me repeat that. We are the only developed country that doesn't have paid vacation time by law. Every other one you can name has some number of days off that's paid by law. You know, whether it's two weeks, some places have a month or two. So we're really getting screwed on that front. You have no idea just how much we're getting screwed on that front. That's a fight that needs to be taken on. But I love this, uh, this program that they're trying in Spain. When you read the history of this in the U.S., it's absolutely fascinating. We've gone so much further right-wing and so much more corporatist in the U.S. since even then, since the New Deal era. So it's crazy, man. Now, there is a deeper conversation to be had here. I don't know how much we want to get into this now, but listen, one of the biggest problems with our economy and with modern society is that people feel alienated and disconnected from their work, and so they're not happy. You know, uh, everybody wants to feel useful with what they do all day, and they want to feel creative with what they do all day. And the way our society functions and our economy functions now, um, people don't feel that. And so I was just reading this number the other day. Um, I think it was Gallup asked in 2013, what percentage of people feel, quote, engaged in their work? The number is depressingly low. Only 13% of Americans feel engaged in their work, which is a good way of saying only 13% like their job or happy at their job. Only 13% feel engaged. I mean, that's wild, man. That's, what, 87% do not feel engaged, so they're just sort of going through the motions. That's incredibly depressing. So 
how do we tackle this problem, which is arguably like the biggest problem, because people don't have that meaning and purpose in their life. I mean, there's a few ways you could tackle it. The argument from socialists is you need to democratize the economy. Uh, you know, a form of market socialism would be take all these companies, democratize these companies. There's no longer that rigid hierarchy. Everybody gets an equal say in the direction of their company. And that alone will give people a greater say. They'll feel more empowered. They'll feel more meaning and purpose because now they get a, you know, a direct say in the direction of the company and therefore the direction of their own work and their lives. So that's what socialists argue is give people, empower people, get them more involved, and then they'll feel more fulfilled. That's one way of looking at this. Another way of looking at this is a sort of futuristic way where you say what we need to do is automate all the grunt work that nobody wants to do and then still pay people for the fruits of the labor of the machines. You know, that's, that's another way to look at it. It's like get all the grunt work done where nobody has to do the grunt work, which we probably can do in short order because we have modern technology, which is kind of incredible. But the system is so rigged and so corrupt, I don't, I'm skeptical we could ever get to a point where we make such an altruistic and benevolent and objectively intelligent decision at the higher levels of society to say, yeah, pay people for a machine doing work on their behalf. So I don't know if we'll ever get to that point. But I do feel like there's this, this transitionary phase, this intermediate phase where what can be done is, I mean, try obviously as much as possible to make it so that people have fulfilling lines of work, really incentivize people to get into more fulfilling lines of work. But people aren't, there's just, I, I'm skeptical that we could ever get to a point where like 90% of people are, are doing work that they find fulfilling. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how can we then give people who aren't working fulfilling jobs the ability to feel fulfilled in other ways? And in step this idea of like the four-day work week. You know, like, well, okay, what if you just had fewer days at work? And so your time off, you have the ability to pursue more of the things that make you feel useful and creative and happy. And, you know, you can get fulfilled that way, not necessarily through your economic life, but through your life outside of your economic life. And so that's why I'm such a strong supporter of something like a four-day work week. Honestly, I think we should go even further. I like a three-and-a-half-day work week. And you sort of split the week up into two shifts, and some people work the first shift, and some people work the second shift. And, you know, you can – that way you're really giving people a lot more time to pursue their own interests and feel fulfilled um, because half the time they wouldn't be, you know, at, at work and worrying about money and economic life. And also, of course, I think you should provide people with material well-being enough where the floor is reasonable, unlike what we have now, which is why I think we should have a universal basic income as well. But, yeah, like – going to a four-day work week is a step in the right direction because what that is is I think that there's an acknowledgement of like, listen, there's still a lot of work that needs to get done that nobody wants to do, but we want these people to feel happy and we want these people to feel fulfilled and we want them to have a shot at life. And so, yeah, if you limit the number of days that you're forced to be at this terrible job, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And, of course, the idea is you pay them the same too, but if they're being more productive, you should probably even pay them more. Um, and I think, obviously, minimum wage is not a living wage. We need to fix that problem as well. There's a lot more we could say about this. But, yeah, this is a fascinating conversation about meaning and purpose and how people feel fulfilled. And right now, only 13% of people feel engaged in their job. That's a crisis, and nobody really talks about that. Um, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. I would totally be in favor of going to a four-day work week. I would like a three-and-a-half-day work week. And also, I think we should democratize more aspects of the economy 
we should give people a UBI. There's a number of things we could do, but at least in Spain, they're beginning to have this conversation about real solutions, whereas here we're not. Apparently, we did in the New Deal era, we were having these conversations, but now we're so far right on that spectrum in that Overton window that we laugh at this conversation, even though this is a real substantive conversation to have. Okay. Next. I'm going to do one more and then we'll take a break. I need to get myself to beach. I need to get myself to beach. So the next thing that Biden has on the agenda is infrastructure. That's what seems to be the consensus and what everybody's saying. That's what the conventional wisdom is. Um, that's probably true. But the other thing that's now being floated is taxes. What's he going to do when it comes to taxes? Well, here's a short segment discussing that. Good morning, Jonathan. And in fact, Secretary Yellen dodging the question as to whether or not the administration supports the tax on ultra-millionaires and billionaires that was put forth the other week from Senator Elizabeth Warren. That wealth tax is something that is really going to ignite a debate amongst Democrats, particularly as progressives look to move President Biden back to the left following the compromise that he made with centrists during the last round of stimulus negotiations. But let's take a look at what the administration has let leak out with regards to some proposals for what they are looking to be a framework for the tax proposal. First and foremost, to repeal parts of that Republican 2017 Trump tax cuts, to raise some of the corporate tax rate back to 28%. Republicans are not going to like that on the banking committee. They feel that the lower corporate tax rate would help to drive some foreign investment back to the United States. And then increasing income tax on those earning more than $400,000 annually. Either way, it's hard to see how this would actually get through with any Republican support. Uh, and because of that, uh, it's increasingly unlikely that in the immediate short term they would be able to get this through. John, this is where the conversation is, though, right now. Kevin, it's good to see you, sir. Now, that's why they need to do filibuster reform. And thankfully, um, Biden just came out the other day and said, I'm not in favor of eliminating the filibuster, but I am in favor of making the filibuster the filibuster again. Namely, make it the talking filibuster where you have to actually do work, and it requires a lot of effort in order to filibuster it. Because if we have the talking filibuster, there's no way they'd be able to do as many filibusters as they would do when they just get to declare, I am now filibustering. So um, none of this is, this is, this entire conversation is academic unless and until they reform the filibuster. Like literally just a total waste of time. The Democrats have 51 votes. They would need 60 votes to get any of this done. And you're not even going to get one Republican, never mind nine Republicans, to get on board with this sort of agenda. Even though, by the way, this agenda is, this is populist, what we're talking about here. And you have a handful of Republicans who are now pretending to be populist. Josh Hawley is one. Marco Rubio is another who came out with like a semi-endorsement of the Amazon uh, union effort which is surprising, but it was really weaselly. He used terrible arguments, and he made clear, like, I only mean for Amazon because I don't like Amazon. Other, other words, in other ways, fuck unions. So, but point is that they're frauds. They're not going to support populist tax proposals like an ultra-millionaires and billionaires tax, a wealth tax. They're not going to support repealing parts of the Trump's tax cut bill from 2017. 83% of the benefits of that, of that bill went to the top 1%. And you'll see Hawley and Rubio are not going to be in favor of taking away 
some of the benefits from the wealthy. The corporate tax. So they bring up Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. This is quintessential Joe Biden. Why do I say that? You want to know what it was before Trump cut it to 21%? 35%. I mean, this is just perfect Joe Biden. Instead of coming in and saying, not only do I not want a 21%, I want to go back to what it was, 35%. Or he could have even said, I don't want the corporate tax at 21%. I want, it, I want to double it, 42 I want to raise it to 42%. Instead of that, what does he do? Let's go from 21 to 28 which isn't even back to what it was just before Trump. Now, listen, to be fair, there might be a conversation to be had about loopholes. So maybe even though it was 35% on paper before Trump, after all the loopholes and deductions, people, you know, some corporations were paying zero. So maybe Biden means make it 28% and eliminate a lot of those loopholes, which would mean they're net paying a higher tax rate. It's yet to be seen. But I still think the optics of it are hilarious because it's exactly what we'd expect from a neoliberal corporatist like Biden. You know, like don't even go back to what it was just before Trump. Let's still make it lower than that. But I'm going to raise it from what Trump did because what Trump did is bad. Okay. Uh, And then, of course, they say increasing the income tax on earners who make $400,000 a year or more. That's, again, I think opposing that is madness. The number has crept up over the years. When Obama ran, he said people who make over $100,000 a year. Then it became 150, then it became 250. Now it's at 400,000 plus. You know, so the Democrats keep moving further and further right, and the Republicans, you know, stay in their exact same place of like all taxes on wealthy people are terrible and we should eliminate as many of them as humanly possible, which again is the most elitist position you can possibly take. And that's the main point here. All these Republicans who are pretending to be populist, there's not a populist one among them, among them. Because if there were, some of them would come out and say, I just flat out support Joe Biden's plan here. Because Joe Biden is not at all talking about raising taxes on working people. Not at all. Not one of the taxes would raise taxes on working people. So if they're not raising taxes on working people, but they're only raising it on the wealthy, if you are a populist, you should be like, that's what's up. I'm down for that 100%. Let's do it. None of them are saying that. None of them are going to do that. Joe would need nine, to get it, nine Republicans to get it through regular order now. Again, he's not even going to get one. What does that tell you about the Republicans? What does that tell you? Completely corporate, completely corrupt, completely elitist. Now, again, in the case of Joe, though, on paper this stuff is good, but what will the plan actually be when it gets down to it? So let's assume for a second they do reform the filibuster. They do that, okay? And so they can get something with 51 votes. Okay. What will the plan actually look like? Unfortunately, it wouldn't look like this. Why? Because Manchin and Cinema are going to say, well, we don't agree with the tax on ultra-millionaires and billionaires. Okay. They would say, well, maybe we're in favor of raising taxes a little bit on the wealthy, but not as much as you, Joe. So instead of $400,000 and up, make it $500,000 a year and up. Those are the people we'll raise taxes on. So they're gonna, there's going to be a back and forth. There's going to be shitty positions taken by Manchin and Cinema, and Biden will cave to them. But I'm curious to see what, what would come out of a negotiation like that. I really am. Um, I'm curious to see which taxes Manchin and Cinema in particular would target. Which ones would they look at and say, don't touch that one? Or I don't agree with you raising taxes this much on this group of people or with this kind of tax. I'm very curious to see because, again, all these ideas on paper are great ideas. You know, they don't go far enough, but they're, they're good. They're good, strong, populist economic ideas 
So anybody on the Republican side or the Democratic side who comes out against them, they're just letting you know I'm incredibly elitist, I'm a corporatist, and I'm corrupt. A lot of them are corrupt, and that's why they don't want to raise taxes on the wealthier corporations. So, again, we'll see. But unless and until they reform that filibuster, this entire conversation is academic. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, war in Afghanistan conversation. We got that and much more. Stay right there, y'all.
Okay. Shut her up, bro. <clears throat> All right, let's continue. Updates on Afghanistan or Iraq are few and far between. Um, and whenever I do see them, I get incredibly angry because they're terrible. So let me show you this from the Los Angeles Times. They say, leaving Afghanistan under the deal Biden inherited from Trump could spur chaos, U.S. commanders say. Taliban militants could threaten major cities unless President Biden's administration can progress on a peace deal by May, top U.S. commanders said. There's a few things to point out here. First of all, notice how the Los Angeles Times is just being, they're being stenographers to U.S. commanders. They're being stenographers. They're saying, what's, what would you like to tell the public, Mr. or Mrs. U.S. commander? Oh, you'd like to tell them that U.S. cities will be targeted by the Taliban if we pull out? Fine, I'm just going to print that in the headline. Your job is supposed to be to hold the powerful accountable, to fact check them, to be watchdog. You're not being their watchdog. You're just repeating whatever they tell you. Did you demand evidence? Of course they didn't demand evidence. Of course they didn't demand evidence. Now, by the way, there's a lot of things that are even implied here that are not true. Like, for example, the idea that, like, the, the Trump deal where we get out by May, that we're really getting out. We're not. There's still going to be, I believe the number is 2,000 troops there. So that's not a withdrawal. This is a withdrawal in the same way Obama pretended like he was withdrawing, where he would just yo-yo the troop levels. You send a bunch of them in, you take a bunch of them out. You send a bunch of them in, you take a bunch of them out. But at no point do you actually have no U.S. troops there. Yet you always have at least 1,000. So it's the same thing going on here. But, I mean, seriously, think about their point here. There is no reason to believe that the Taliban is going to attack the United States. None. At no point did the Taliban attack the United States. That was al-Qaeda with 9-11. It was the Taliban that basically gave refuge to al-Qaeda, and that's nominally why we say, oh, you know, they're our enemy and we need to stay there. But how many times have we gone through this, guys? I can only go through this rant so many times before my brain explodes, but why are we in Iraq and Afghanistan? Why are we still there today? What were the original reasons told to the public as to why we're going to be there? In the case of Iraq, it was, oh, my God, Saddam Hussein. He's been dead for so long. In the case of Afghanistan, oh, my God, we've got to get Osama bin Laden. He's been dead so long, too, and we got him in Pakistan, not Afghanistan. So why are we still there? Why are we still there? Why are we still there? Give me a reason. What's the reason? They don't even bother to say anything about that anymore. They don't bother to tell you why we're still there. They don't bother to even lay out goals. Like, what are your goals? Okay, you tell me we need to be there. Okay, I don't believe you, but I'm just going to accept that for a second. What are your goals that we need to achieve before we can get out? What are your goals? Oh, interesting, you don't have any. You'd like to stay there permanently, not have any goals, and continue to stay there permanently. Why would I be okay with that? Why would I allow that? Why should my tax money go to that when our infrastructure gets a grade of D, actually the new report has us at like C minus or something, our infrastructure gets a grade of C, Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean water, millions of people don't have health insurance in this country, why would I be okay with that? Who in their right mind would be okay with that? 
Have you seen Detroit or some of these dilapidated cities in our country? Why should all of our tax money go towards that? They don't even bother making an argument anymore, making a point anymore. It's just accepted that this is the way it works. We invade places and we just stay there. We have over 800 U.S. military bases around the world as our country's falling apart. Why? What's the point? And if you make the argument as good as you possibly can, do you really think that'll be convincing to the majority of Americans? Of course not. Of course not. These wars are deeply unpopular. And, you know, the real motives are gross. People don't want to have that conversation because it doesn't paint us very favorably. I mean, the real reasons were in these places. In Iraq, listen, oil production shot through the roof when we started occupying there. So that had something to do with it in the case of Iraq. In the case of Afghanistan, you could say opium. You could say a tremendous amount, trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. You could say we view these as very important regions geopolitically in the chessboard against Russia and China. So we want to exert influence in the region, and we view these places as crucial places where we can continue to do that. So there are reasons why we're there, but they're not the ones that they pretend that they are. And the media just goes right along with it. They really regurgitated the idea, if we don't stay in Afghanistan, Taliban militants could threaten major U.S. cities. The fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? That is complete and utter nonsense. You told us we're going there to get Saddam Hussein to Iraq. He's dead and gone, but we're still in Iraq. You told us we've got to get Osama bin Laden, and that's why we're in Afghanistan. He's dead and gone, but we're still there as well. Then you told us, well, there's still remnants of al-Qaeda there, so we need to stay there. According to our own intelligence agencies, as of a decade ago, there were less than 100 al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan. So then they moved the goalposts. Well, uh, I guess the Taliban. The Taliban is a guerrilla army, and they live there. They're never going to go anywhere. They're not going to go away. It's not going to happen. And also... The people who we've aligned ourselves with in these fights, you guys know this, they're warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan. There are reports of our allies having child sex slaves. And when U.S. soldiers blew the whistle on that, they got punished. They got punished. That's why we're there, to maintain law and order and freedom and democracy by putting warlords with child sex slaves in power? The reasons they tell you are not the reasons why we're there. Wake up, everybody. Wake up. And the media is so pathetic. I mean, really, they get to the point where an idiot YouTuber like myself can give you a way bigger dose of reality than the Los Angeles Times or any other outlets. I mean, what a shame. They're supposed to be the serious people doing serious reporting. Actually, the New York Times just yesterday had a great piece on the use of Agent Orange and the war crimes that we committed in Laos. And um, it hit me like, oh, okay, so they're being totally honest about how we violated international law and how we were doing war crimes. But it's, you know, 50 years later. So what, do we have to wait until like 2070 before we get the truth on what we're doing today in Venezuela, in Syria, in Iraq, what we're doing with Iran? Is that what we have to do? Afghanistan, is, is that what we have to do? We have to wait? To be fair, they did the, the Afghanistan papers came out recently, but mainstream media didn't pick it up and run with it and treat it like the scandal it was, so it came and it went. And the other half the time, we got shit like this. If Biden doesn't stay in Afghanistan, the Taliban's going to attack us. We just made that up, but it's, I'm still going to say it. Imagine looking at a situation where we've been at war since 2001. We've been there for 20 years. And your position is, we're going to stay there. We're going to stay there indefinitely. I'm not even going to define victory, and you can shut the fuck up. I don't take that deal, I don't accept that deal, and this is what breeds contempt. 
This is what breeds contempt. We have limited resources, and this is what we're spending it on, never mind all the mass civilian casualties and things of that nature. So nobody should be okay with this. Nobody should be comfortable with this. And shame on the media for running with this obviously bogus narrative. Okay. Now we go to the Pope. I like how it just happens to be the case that in this story about the Pope and about religion, uh, I happen to be wearing a red shirt with a red background. (laughs) So the true believers are going to watch this and think I'm like the Antichrist, which is kind of hilarious. But anyway, um, this is according to NPR. Take a look at this. The Roman Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex marriages, no matter how stable or positive the couple's relationships are, the Vatican said on Monday. The message, approved by Pope Francis, came in response to questions about whether the church should reflect the increasing social and legal acceptance of same-sex unions. Quote, does the church have the power to give the blessing to unions of persons of the same sex, the question asked. Negative, replied the Vatican's, Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, which is responsible for defending Catholic doctrine. The church says its answer regarding same-sex couples declares illicit any form of blessing that tends to acknowledge their unions as such. The message underlines the church's insistence that marriage should be limited to a union between a man and a woman, saying that same-sex unions involve sexual activity outside of marriage. In the Vatican's view, same-sex marriages are not part of God's plan for families and raising children. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is a great reminder here that you can only go so far within the confines of an ideological structure and framework such as a religion, you know. And this pope has repeatedly, routinely been hailed as the most progressive, the most forward-thinking, you know, the most reasonable and, and tolerant one. And listen, that's true. He is. But it's sort of like having a conversation about getting on a professional basketball team and you're picking among the tallest kids in kindergarten. Like you go to the kindergarten class to try to find your new power forward. It's like, well, it doesn't matter how tall the kid is in kindergarten, they're still in kindergarten and they're not going to fare well on a professional basketball team. Sort of like this with questions of, questions of logic and reason and um, civics and crafting a society and making laws like you really want the people with the goofy ass hats and capes and funny costumes holding a chalice you want that person being you know in in the conversation of like hmm who should we treat fairly and equally let's ask the guy with the ridiculous hat on it just you know it's just it's an unmasking moment this is a guy who said previously about gay marriages who am i to judge Who am I to judge, right? We're all sinners. If they're sinning, what are you going to do? It is what it is. I'm not judging. I can't judge. He said that. He's had other moments where he said, you know, kind things about gay marriages or gay people. He's he's said a number of things that are good when it comes to climate policy and when it comes to income and wealth inequality and war. So he said good things, but again, you can only go too far within an so far within an ideological framework. And there's only so much you can bend and twist a doctrine that obviously is primitive and backwards and old and bigoted and intolerant. And so, you know, 
listen, again, the best of all the options to this point, but that's not saying much. That's not saying much. You'd much rather take like a random modern person and ask their opinions on how to craft a society fairly. Much rather, I'd rather roll the dice on a random Gen Z person <laughs> than the guy with the goofy ass hat on because, you know, it's, they're going to swing and they're going to miss a ridiculously high percentage of the time. They are because they're still dealing with the legacy, a legacy of perpetual silliness and wrongness, you know, and he might view his job. I got to balance the history and the legacy and the traditions with modern thinking. And it's like, sorry, but there shouldn't be a balancing act. There shouldn't be. You should just be thinking what's reasonable, what's fair, what's just, what's kind. And oftentimes you have to totally break from religious doctrine to figure that out. You know, sometimes people can use that religious doctrine for positive ends. Again, like when it comes to questions of poverty, for example, that, you know, this Pope is usually out front and saying the right things and believing the right things and doing the right things. But when it comes to social issues, on a lot of these social issues, they're backwards. They're just backwards. And they don't believe in equality. They don't believe in justice. They don't believe in fairness. They don't believe in kindness. They don't believe in the type of reforms that are necessary. So here we are. You know, we always got to be careful when you're dealing with religions and um, particularly the fundamentalists, but even the ones who are more open-minded and liberal. They're doing a balancing act between dumb, old myths and traditions and things that make sense. No reason to do that balancing act. Get rid of the dumb, old traditions and just embrace the things that are reasonable and kind and fair and tolerant and all that stuff. So, you know, listen, I just, I think this is such a great example of like why secular thinking is superior, you know? And it's funny because I know the name of the channel Secular Talk, but I mean, it's just, this shows it, doesn't it? That as much, it's, you're free and you're liberated to have conversations about the way society should be when you're not tied to any old dogmas or doctrines that are obviously written by flawed humans in a previous era, you know? Why would you want to consider that? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, you know, they're brilliant works of philosophy and art and things that you can consider, but religious doctrines, they're not that impressive. You know, maybe there are some, there are some lessons about morality and, and things of that nature to some extent in some of these texts, but do you really want to try to base everything about the way we live on, with these things in mind? It just doesn't make sense, you know. People have pointed this out a million times, but particularly if you're looking at the Bible, they have commandments that, or, or they have, um, not commandments because they're, they're ten commandments, but they have like things that they demand that are so obviously limited to that specific time frame. Like they don't eat shellfish. Eating shellfish is supposed to be a terrible sin. Well, I'm guessing the reason why they added that is because people were, were eating shellfish that had gone bad and they got violently sick or something, you know? I, I, that's probably why they wrote it, but if you're reading it and trying to apply it today, what, you're supposed to not eat any sort of shellfish? Well, what if you enjoy it? And what if it's refrigerated properly? And what if you don't get sick? It's just, why are we balancing old goofiness with intelligent, modern ways of thinking? There's no reason to do that balancing act, but here we are. Even the guy who's viewed as the best and most forward thinking, you still get stuff like this. And so, you know, this is also why the numbers are going down and down and down and down for, I think, all the religions. Because 
people don't view this as, uh, you know, a way to live life that makes sense, a way to think about stuff that's reasonable. They don't view it like that. They view this as a bunch of silly people trying to, you know, implement a silly ideology from a silly book and a silly way of life. Who has time for this nonsense? Life's short. You know, you don't, you don't want to get lost in this garbage, but here we are. Even the most forward-thinking is really not that forward-thinking, and that says a lot about the doctrines. Okay. Why is that not working? There we go. This is something that uh, really highlights a fatal flaw in the way our system functions. So take a look at this from Lee Fong. This is quite the report. He says, Pfizer executives explain to investors that people may need a third dose of COVID vaccine in addition to regular yearly boosters. The company will soon begin plans to hike prices given the significant opportunity for our vaccine. Significant opportunity for our vaccine. So they're viewing this with dollar signs in mind. He goes on to say, the real vaccine conspiracy is the fact that the Buy-Dole Act allows the federal government to set the price and distribution of publicly financed medicine, but has never exercised that right, not on HIV AIDS meds, COVID vaccines, or anything, ever. Pharma always pushes back and wins. That is stunning. That is stunning. So. The government is involved in so many projects where they fund the creation of various medicines. And what Lee Fong is pointing out here is, under U.S. law, they have the right to set the price and distribution of these drugs, and they've never done it. So in other words, you and I, our tax money funds the creation of these medicines, and then big pharma swoops in buys up the rights to it, and then sells it back to us and price gouges us and jacks up the price. That is phenomenally corrupt and backwards. And by the way, the reason why they get away with it and the reason why they do it is because they've bought the politicians. Big Pharma has donated to the Republican Party, to the Democratic Party, to individual politicians. They've given them a tremendous amount of money and then guess what? When they're in power, they rig the rules in their favor. So I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You fund my campaign, okay, what do you want? What do you want in this legislation? I'll give you whatever you want. You want a new subsidy? You want a new tax break? Whatever you want. I got your back. And this is how it manifests. So seriously, think about how backwards this is. Think about how backwards this is. They're looking at the fact that now we might need regular COVID booster shots and you might need a third shot and it's going to be a continuous issue, they're looking at it as, quote, a significant opportunity. They're excited, and they can't wait to hike the prices, to price gouge. They can't wait to do it. Listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. Nationalize big pharma. You know, that's probably one of my opinions that you could say is the most radical 
truly of the belief that anything involving health should be nationalized. I think health insurance should be nationalized, health care should be nationalized, medicine like big pharma, that should be nationalized. Because, listen, we've run the experiment, you know, doing it in the private marketplace and having some sort of a hybrid system, and we see the results. We have a disastrous system here, an incredibly corrupt system, and the outcomes are terrible. You know, uh, I'm reminded of people in the U.K. watched the interview of Megan with Oprah, and they were mortified at the fact that they, we had pharmaceutical ads running. That's a very common thing in the U.S., pharmaceutical ads. Other developed countries have banned pharma ads. You want to know why? Because, what, you get sick, you go get help, the doctor tells you what to take, and you go take it. What, what place is there for advertising? You're supposed to go to your doctor and ask to take a certain medicine? You're not, you're not an expert on this. You didn't go to school for this. You don't know what works and what doesn't work and what fits your symptoms and what doesn't. That's ridiculous. But we have big pharma basically acting like drug dealers here. They're pushing their products on us. And, by the way, there's also, there's across the board in many ways, there's uh, disincentives in the system and perverse incentives where, you know, you're not geared towards making people healthy and fixing problems. That's not the way it works, even though that's the way it should work. So, sorry, nationalize the health insurance industry, nationalize health care, and nationalize big pharma. I, re- I really see no way around it. That's the best you could do. Some would argue, oh, maybe that's not the path, but you should break up big pharma. Listen, God do something. If you want to approach it with an anti-monopoly view, I get it. I'm sure it would be better if we did that than if we keep it as it is right now, but I think you should just nationalize it. I do, especially because tax money funds so, many, so much of the creation of various medicines in the first place. Go that next step. I mean, all we have is, again, a mafia taking their cut and jacking up prices and skimming millions or billions. It's like, well, what's the point? Why do they exist? They shouldn't exist. This is one area where the profit motive is a perverse incentive structure. For something like COVID and the vaccine, it, it should be free across the board for everybody. And any talk of like a third vaccine or booster shots, and now we're going to jack the prices up. Criminal, man. That should be criminal. That should absolutely be criminal. That shouldn't be allowed. But they're openly talking about it in, in meetings with investors and with the boards and whatnot. They are openly talking about that. They're openly having that conversation. And the federal government is not on your side. If they were on your side they would absolutely use the Buy-Dole Act and set the price, set the distribution, you know, make it incredibly fair. I mean, I think it should just be free, be paid for via tax dollars. Um, But, you know, the follow-up stuff probably won't be free, and they'll price gouge you, and the government won't do anything because the government works for Big Pharma. They don't work for you, even though they're supposed to work for you. So this is a true scandal, but watch, the media is not going to cover this much. Credit to Lee Fong of The Intercept. He, he does amazing work. Mainstream media is not going to cover this much, and you want to know why? Because a lot of their ad money comes from Big Pharma. So here we are. You have to come to an asshole YouTuber like myself, an idiot, to get anything resembling the truth in the news. Not to say that I'm great. It's a giant indictment on the system. Okay. Next. 
Take a sip of my salsa, bitch. Let's continue. Here we go. So the Biden administration is, uh, is all over the place when it comes to Saudi Arabia. They released a report showing that MBS killed Jamal Khashoggi. Um, then not only did they not do anything, soon thereafter they were bombing top Saudi targets in Syria, people that Saudi Arabia would want them to bomb. And uh, Aaron Maté's theory was that that was, you know, a gesture of, hey, don't, don't hate us, don't dislike us. I had to release that report, but I'm still your boy, and here I am doing your dirty work for you. I mean, that is a plausible theory, you know. Um, so Mehdi Hassan here is going to talk to Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, and ask him about Saudi Arabia. Look at what happened. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said last month, and I quote, those involved in the abhorrent killing of Jamal Khashoggi must be held accountable. We know, thanks to the Biden administration, thanks to you, declassifying the CIA's intelligence, that MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, was behind that killing. And yet you haven't held him accountable. Why? Well, so let's be clear. As you said, we released, we finally, long overdue, released the report that pointed the finger clearly at MBS uh, as being responsible for that. And we have uh, reset our relationship with Saudi Arabia. We've recalibrated that relationship very much. We've imposed sanctions on uh, his elite force that conducted this event. We imposed sanctions on high-level officials in Saudi intelligence. It's been our government's longstanding policy not to personally sanction uh, heads of state, uh, leaders of government, uh, in, re- in countries where we have diplomatic relations. He's not the head of state, because though. we need to also... We also Ron, he's, he's not the head of state. He's, a, he's very... He's a very senior government official, and we need to work with the Saudis to solve problems like the crisis we have in Yemen. So we have to balance uh, the, the, the desperate needs for accountability here, which we have taken important steps on, uh, with, uh, for this horrible, uh, ghastly, awful, uh, inexcusable in crime, with also, unfortunately, our needs to work with the Saudis on challenges like the problem we have in Yemen right now. That's insane. He talks about working with the Saudis on challenges like what we have in Yemen right now. The challenge in Yemen is Saudi Arabia. They're the problem. They're the problem. So why are you working with them when they're the problem? You're actively working on the wrong side of this? The answer is yes, that's it. that is what they're doing. They're actively working on the wrong side of this. Saudi Arabia is carrying out a genocide. Saudi Arabia has an embargo on the port of Hodeidah. Data. And there's famine as a result of that. People can't get the food they need. People can't get the medicine they need. We've seen the videos and the pictures from the hospitals that are coming out. We could end that today. If we chose to end it, we could end it today. We're the United States of America. We have the most powerful military on planet Earth. We're still the boss. We're still the superpower. But you would actually have to exert some pressure on MBS. Now, you want to use a carrot and stick approach? By all means, tell them, listen, there's benefits if you stop doing this, but if you don't stop doing this, then there's going to be a punishment. I mean, listen, he's bad enough where I think you shouldn't even dangle the carrot, but if you want to do it and that's real politic, by all means, go right ahead and do that. I understand why you would do that, but they're not doing that. They're saying, well, the reason we're not doing anything is because we have to work with them on something like Yemen. Saudi Arabia is on the U- U.N., Human Rights Panel. 
Human Rights Council, as they're creating the biggest humanitarian disaster on the planet today, as they're doing an embargo, as they're starving a country, as they're bombing civilians, open-air markets, mosques, schools. This is what they're doing. This is a sick joke. We're actively helping facilitate a genocide. Then they have the nerve to say, we need to work with them on yet Work with them. You should be working against them on the issue of Yemen. And the fact that you're not says everything I need to know about you. Because he even said previously, well, listen, we have a longstanding policy of, like, we don't sanction top heads of state or government officials um, who we have diplomatic relations with. Okay, do you understand that, I know that's a fancy way of talking, but all he's saying is our approach to international politics is like high school. If you're my friend, it doesn't matter if you do something disastrously wrong, incredibly fucked up, actively harmful, purposefully evil. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You're my friend. So it's okay when you do it, and it's okay when we do it. Do you understand that? That's what he's arguing. We don't sanction our allies. So then shut the fuck up about, oh, we care about freedom and democracy and human rights. You just admitted you don't, because if you did, you would also have to hold your allies accountable. They don't care about human rights. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about freedom. They don't care about justice. We don't sanction our allies. Okay, so what about when your allies carry out a genocide? Did we say never again? What we meant was, again, that's what we meant, again, and we'll help you. We'll do stuff for you. That's how evil this is. You just sent a message to Saudi Arabia and to MBS. They don't like journalists. You can kill them. If you don't like journalists and they're, you know, getting under your skin, kill them. Even if they're American citizens, we don't give a fuck. We're not going to do anything to stop you from doing it. Go ahead and kill them. Go ahead. So don't tell you. This is deeply against the First Amendment as well. Because now, how protected do you feel for, to have free speech and to have a free press? If you ruthlessly criticize the Saudi government or Mohammed bin Salman, you might get killed. And the government's not going to do anything to bring about justice if that happens. So now he feels empowered. Now he feels like he can do it again. bullshit. You have the Trump administration that sold him weapons right after this shit, encouraging it, and they have the Biden administration doing the same thing. We don't sanction our allies, but we do sanction our enemies nonstop for everything. We are going to sanction Venezuela. We are going to sanction Syria. We are going to sanction Iran. Even when they're doing what we say we want them to do, we're going to pull out of our peace agreements and keep sanctioning them and keep starving them. And it, you know, do embargoes and block medicine. We're going to do all that. So if you're our enemy, we're going to sanction you no matter what. If you're our ally, you can do whatever the fuck you want. God, they're terrible, these people. They don't care about freedom. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about human rights. They run the world like it's high school. And now you see it. Okay. All right, let's talk about Janet Yellen.
this caught my eye this week. This is something I needed to share. Janet Yellen is proposing a global minimum tax on multinational corporations, a global minimum tax. Janet Yellen is, of course, the Treasury Secretary. Um, so it would be apparently the OECD would uh, be in charge of enforcing this, but they go on to explain in the article it's uh, completely unenforceable. So I sort of don't get why we're even having the conversation then if it's unenforceable. Are you relying on the goodwill of various nations to try to um, implement a minimum tax for corporations? And, and the idea behind it, just so you know, is um, to prevent outsourcing and to prevent cheating. Because if you make it so that it effectively costs the same to outsource jobs to some other country because you're getting taxed a certain amount, why wouldn't you just make your life easier and keep your jobs here in the U.S.? If you're going to get taxed no matter what, if you're not like dodging the taxes and avoiding the taxes, if you can't get away from them, then why not keep your jobs in the U.S.? So it's a way to try to stop outsourcing, a way to try to stop uh, tax cheats. And just so you know, it's nearly $500 billion a year is tax avoidance internationally. $500 billion a year, nearly half a trillion dollars a year taxes are being hidden. So, oh, and the other thing is this would have to pass through Congress, which it, it might get through the House, but it wouldn't get through the Senate. There's no way it would get through the Senate. I don't even think it would get through the Senate if you got rid of the filibuster. If you only needed 51 votes, I don't think it would get through the Senate. So I don't, I don't really get the idea of why they're doing this. When I saw the headlines, I was like, ooh, that's interesting, and maybe that could have positive effects. But then when you read the details and you find out it's unenforceable, I don't fully get why they would do this. It just leads me to think it's like a virtue signaling exercise, you know, about how we're going to crack down on corporations and we're going to make sure they pay their fair share, but my idea is a totally unenforceable thing. So, there, I mean, there are ways to actually crack down on them, you know, the – but Trump's 2017 tax cut law allowed for repatriation of offshore funds from corporations, and they basically paid next to nothing. They may have literally paid nothing, but they were dodging taxes, keeping it overseas, and Trump was like, yeah, bring all that money back in the country. We're not even going to get taxed on it. So corporations really have us by the balls, and the government lets them get away with bloody murder because the corporations bought and owned the government. But make no mistake about it. If you had the political will, you could get them to pay more taxes. There are ways to get them to pay more taxes where they really don't have a choice. They don't have an option. But it would require the political will. It would require politicians who aren't corrupt. And it would require intelligent policy. There are ways to stop outsourcing or massively reduce outsourcing. And there are ways to stop uh, tax avoidance. But... You know, none of the ideas are seriously being floated. This was one that I thought had promise, but again, when I read that it was totally unenforceable, I don't really get why they're doing it. If it's totally unenforceable, are we just wasting our time and wasting our breath? Is it a virtue signaling exercise? Or do they actually feel like it's possible they can get different countries to sign on to a global minimum tax? But listen, the, the tax conversation overall, I find uh, very interesting. And there's a number of taxes that are being floated by the Biden administration at the moment. And if they reform the filibuster and start doing some of these ideas, it would be wonderful. So they want to repeal parts of the 2017 Trump tax cuts. That would be great because 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. 
They want to raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. That's good, although previously it was 35 so they should go to that number and get rid of the loopholes. They'll probably go to 28 and get rid of the loopholes. And he wants to increase income tax on those earning more than $400,000. And, of course, Elizabeth Warren floated recently an ultra-millionaire's tax, um, which is there's nobody better to tax than the ultra-wealthy, of course. That's why the estate tax is great, because it only applies to like 0.02% of the public. People have more than $11 million in net worth. I think the ultra-millionaire tax is for people 50 million, was it 30 or 50? 50 million and above. Um, and it's like 2% or 3% of that. And that raises a tremendous amount of money. You could do a lot with that. And it also really helps reduce income and wealth inequality. So at a certain point, extreme wealth, its very existence corrupts the proper functioning of a democracy. And so you need to stop extreme wealth. You need to stop people from amassing too much power because then they just buy the system. And so that's why everybody should be in favor of very progressive tax rates, very progressive tax systems. Um, it's not to say people can't be rich. Of course they can be rich, but they can be rich within reason. And there are ways you can craft policy to have that come about, but, you know, I don't think these ideas are necessarily the way to get us there or it doesn't go far enough. But definitely this global minimum tax, I don't think they could pull it off, but if they did, it would help. It would just be totally unenforceable, so it seems like a bit of a waste of time. Okay. Minimum wage poll. New minimum wage poll to talk to all of you about. Eight in ten Americans think the federal minimum wage is too low, and two-thirds support increasing it to $15 per hour. A comprehensive new poll from Amazon and Ipsos shows. That's fascinating. So Amazon commissioned a poll, and they found that $15 minimum wage and raising the minimum wage is extremely popular. Now, why? Why did they commission a poll on this? My guess is they're already paying $15 an hour minimum wage to their, you know, 350,000 employees. Uh, so my guess is the reason why they did this is because since they're already paying it, they want to show it's really popular. They want to get it implemented because then that forces smaller businesses to pay the $15 minimum wage and some of those smaller businesses can't afford it as much, and they might go out of business and give Amazon even more business. So don't get it twisted. It's very likely nefarious motives on Amazon's part as to why they would do this. But, and here's the important part, guys, there are ways around that that don't involve scrapping a minimum wage increase. You could still have a $15 minimum wage, and you can give smaller businesses that might have trouble affording it some sort of tax credit, some sort of subsidy, have a program that ameliorates the issues surrounding it for smaller businesses. So I get that their reasoning is nefarious, but we can take care of whatever other problems would arise from a $15 minimum wage without totally scrapping the idea of a $15 minimum wage. But it is kind of hilarious, isn't it, that Amazon, previously they didn't even pay $15 an hour, and now they're commissioning polls that are like, pay everybody $15 an hour, pay, make the minimum wage $15 an hour. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this backstory, but the reason why Amazon went to $15 an hour is because Ro Khanna and Bernie Sanders introduced a piece of legislation called the Stop Bezos Act. 
Uh, and Jeff Bezos saw this, and he felt political pressure, and so he was compelled to act. Uh, but he was afraid it would start getting bipartisan support because the way it was framed was brilliant. It was almost like, I don't remember all the details, but there was a part of the bill that was highlighting the fact that if you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, then the size of the social safety net will shrink massively because a lot of full-time minimum wage workers need to go to the government to make ends meet, and so they need the social safety net, and so that means bigger government. We could shrink the size of government if we pay a $15 minimum wage. And so I think Bezos feared that it would get some Republican support because of the framing. Now, what he doesn't know is that Republicans are so insanely corrupt and corporatist that they wouldn't bat an eyelash, and none of them would have been in favor of it. But he was afraid that this thing would take off, and he was getting negative press as a result of this Stop Bezos Act. And so he was like, fine, I'll pay 15, I'll pay 15. So uh, credit to Bernie Sanders and credit to Ro Khanna on that front. That's important. Apparently, Amazon has done a horrible job when it comes to um, protecting workers in the COVID era. Uh, so there's other colossal issues that they have and haven't been dealt with effectively yet. But uh, it's good they pay 15 Of course, we should pass $15 an hour um, across the board. And listen, this gets back to the conversation about strategy. There was one poll, I think it was 2019 poll on $15 minimum wage. 67% of the country said they want a $15 minimum wage. Some polls have it about half of Republicans, maybe a little over, that support a $15 minimum wage. So it is bipartisan among the people. It's not bipartisan among the politicians. So what can and should Biden do on this front? The answer is simple. Number one, you have to reform the filibuster, make them actually talk. If they want a filibuster raising the minimum wage, by all means, go right ahead. That's the biggest political killer they could ever do. They're shooting themselves in the dick for the upcoming elections. So go right ahead. I dare you to filibuster raising the minimum wage. So reform the filibuster, make it so they actually have to talk to block stuff. And then beyond that, carrot or stick approach with cinema and mansion and the eight, you know, uh, Democrats who came out against $15 minimum wage. I'll be your best friend or I'll be your best enemy. It's on you. But if you cross me on this, there's going to be consequences and you're going to, your career is going to be done. I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to do everything I can in my power to fund a primary opponent against you and to take you down. And I don't know if you noticed, but I still have a 60% approval rating and nobody even knows who you are. So there's that. But again, that requires effort. That requires really wanting $15 minimum wage and being willing to go to the mat for it. I don't think Biden and Kamala really believe in it. I don't think we're going to get it. But, you know, what might happen is this. They might reform the filibuster to get to the talking filibuster. Um, that would be a good thing. But then they'll still probably negotiate down the minimum wage increase to $12 or probably even $10 an hour, and then they'll pass that and declare victory, even though it's still, that would still not be a living wage. So you're raising the minimum wage from not a living wage to not a living wage. And that would be incredibly infuriating because they'll also probably tie it to inflation or minimum wage increases so that you have automatic raises with it. But the automatic raises will never get you to a living wage. So it will be a giant scam and the corporations would be happiest under that scenario. Okay. All right, y'all. Final story of the day. Here we go. Idiots on Fox News went after universal basic income. One of the arguments I keep coming back to for Democrats and for the left in general is that 
you need to be completely unapologetic and really aggressive when it comes to talking about economic policy. And what happens is you bait Republicans into defending really unpopular positions. So if you argue endlessly for universal health care, Medicare for all, you're baiting them into saying, I don't think everybody should have health care. You win. Uh, if you do $15 minimum wage, you bait them into saying, I don't think the minimum wage should be a living wage. You win. Um, another one now, especially in the era of COVID, is universal basic income. It's wildly popular now. Everybody loves the idea. Um, and with some people being unapologetic and arguing for it and some pilot programs going on now around the country that's testing it, well, they've now, right-wing pundits have now lost their minds and they can't help but make terrible arguments against it. Sorry, guys, I turned sound off there for a second. Let's try again. In Cairo, they're exploring the idea of a universal basic income. I woke up today, here's my check. Is this where, the, is that the capitalist system that you grew up in? No, it's not, uh, but uh, I, I really believe, and I've been talking about this for a couple of years, of course, Andrew Yang really was propelled to the na- on a national stage promoting this and some others. Uh, it, it, it's, it really is amazing because even with this COVID relief package, uh, the rescue bill, we saw the reintroduction of the welfare state where you're, the, the, this country is going to pay you a certain amount of money every month uh, based on how many kids you have, whether you work or not, whether you've looked for work. You layer that on with existing welfare programs, and then you're going to get paid universal basic income, what they call a guaranteed income. I call it a Faustian deal. And I really think, and I want people to think about this very closely, it's promoted as something that's caring, but I'm not so sure that it is. We're born in the greatest country in the world where if you apply yourself, you can be anything you want. This is a disincentive to wake up those innate gifts that God may have given you, to wake up those innate talents that you just need to nurture. This is a bribe. This is a Faustian deal for a lot of Americans never to participate or even attempt to participate in the American dream. And I don't think the trade-off is worth it. Right. Uh, it doesn't reward hard work, uh, and they're going to reward politicians who give them the free money. That's what they're hoping for. Yeah, Brian, that's called being a good politician. This is ridiculous. Politicians are just going to do what the people want to try to get elected. Yeah, that's called being a phenomenal politician, being good at your job, representing the will of the people. I mean, this is like a bribe. They're going to try to give the people money, and the people are going to like it. Ridiculous. Why is that a bad thing? That's what Social Security is. We give money to old people. Why? Because they're old and they need support. Can you imagine this argument in that context? What, are you just going to give old people money for nothing? And make them like you and want to vote for you? Ridiculous. How dumb are you? This is just a bribe. Let me get this straight. It's not a bribe when ExxonMobil gives politicians giant campaign contributions and then they get special subsidies. That's not a bribe when it's for a particular special interest that paid off politicians. But it is a bribe when people support a policy like universal basic income, and then a politician does universal basic income. You got it exactly backwards, dog. The bribe is what ExxonMobil does. The bribe is what Wall Street does. The bribe is what the military industrial complex does. Because they pay the politicians, and the politicians give, them, give the special interests special treatment. That's a bribe. That's the problem. But 
the people supporting an idea to improve the country and the politician delivering on the idea to improve the country, that's called good politics. That's called representative democracy. That's called the way the system is supposed to work. Um, so I love, at the beginning, Brian Kilmeade is being really smug, and he's like, you just wake up and get paid? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And then he says, is this the capitalist system that you grew up in? And everybody's like, no, no, it's not. I love how they don't even realize they're helping the left with their own framing. People are going, damn. So what, the capitalist system I grew up in, you get zero help for anything ever, and you're on your own completely, no matter what? Not sure I like that. Um, then Charles Payne says that COVID relief bill, quote, we saw the reintroduction of the welfare state. So think about that. He's slamming the COVID relief bill as like, this is the reintroduction of the welfare state. Does he not realize that the bill's like 78% popular? Does he not realize that even 59% of Republicans are like, I like this bill. I need this bill. How dumb do you have to be? How dumb can you possibly be? Again, they're doing our work for us. This bill's like welfare. And apparently people really like this. They like welfare. And welfare apparently is very good. Thank you. Thank you for making these points. We appreciate it. Um, but here's the most important part, guys. He says, we're born in the greatest country in the world. Charles Payne says that. First of all, I love the random American exceptionalism, American supremacists, just these assertions. I say this. I think this. I'm saying it. What's it based on? <laughs> we're born in the greatest country in the world. And this universal basic income is a disincentive to work. And then Kill Me echoes that point later. He says this, people aren't going to want to work. They're not going to want to do hard work anymore. That is fundamentally not true. We just got the results of a new study on this. In Stockton, California, Mayor Tubbs did this pilot program with universal basic income. It was just $500. Um, but you know what they found? People who were part of the program were more likely to go out, find jobs, and get employed. So there's an argument. It incentivizes work. Here, let me just give you one story uh, from that program. There was one guy who was living paycheck to paycheck, working at a job that was shitty that he hated, but he had to keep going because he has to pay the bills. He never had the ability to go out to try to find another job because he was working nonstop at this job and not really getting by, barely getting by. And so having the $500 allowed him to take one day off of that terrible job, off from work, and then go do an interview and then get a better job where he got more money. That's much more indicative of what's going to happen under these programs. That's much more likely how it's going to unfold. The numbers were crystal clear. It wasn't even close. The people who were part of the program were way more likely to become employed and have a job. By the way, the other arguments people like to use, they didn't do it in this segment, but oftentimes people uh, on the right will make this argument in regards to universal basic income. They'll say, well, they're going to spend the money on things that are not good. Wrong. Again, with this a pilot program in Stockton, California, we found most of the money, or not most, a plurality of the money went to food. It went to food. And then the next biggest thing was like utilities, important bills that had to be paid. It was like less than 1% that went to stuff like, you know, cigarettes, gambling, whatever, you know. It, is, it was without a doubt a successful program. By the way, Alaska has had a version of UBI for a long time now tied to their oil industry. 
Is Alaska a hellscape? Has everything collapsed? Does nobody want to work? Nonsense. So universal basic income, you know what it fundamentally ended up doing? Giving people a reasonable, fair floor, the bare minimum to get by. And then people, given that more reasonable shot, thrived and did a lot better. So listen, again, that's not me speaking. That's this pilot program on UBI. That's this Stockton, uh, California program. And now a lot of other, like Chicago is going to test it out. Some others are going to test it out. Listen, man, all the data now shows it's wildly successful. So it's a good idea, but they don't like it because really it's Fox News. They're massively corporatist. They're against anything that's good for the people, that helps the people. All they care about is the culture war nonsense and serving corporations and billionaires. That's what they do. That's what they do. But guess what? Now, because of COVID and some other factors, UBI is wildly popular. There's no putting that genie back in the bottle, dog. There's no putting it back in the bottle. People love it. They're not going to stop loving it. And with all these studies coming out, all this research coming out, all these pilot programs showing how successful it is, you can't beat it. it I told you guys, it hopped my list of preferred policies. It did. It hopped my list because I saw what happened with COVID. The easiest way to help people is just give them a direct check. And so that's the answer. Social security for all. That's how I like to think of it. Social, if we have Medicare for all is one of the things we advocate for. The other thing we advocate for or should advocate for is social security for all. Okay. We are done, baby. We are done, baby. Love you guys. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. We, have, we don't have June shoe on head anymore for Thursday uh, for Crystal Kylan friends, but we do have Matt Taibbi. Really looking forward to that. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.